Okay, uh, let's get started here tonight. Um, Jim is, uh, is gone again this evening. He is actually in Boise, Idaho tonight, and all this week he's teaching at Boise Bible College, um, I believe with a, a friend of his from graduate school. So um, our thoughts and prayers are with him. I'm sure his skills and his wisdom are being utilized there, and I'm sure they appreciate having him in as a guest teacher for the week. Um, so you have me this week, and actually next week, again, you'll have uh, someone else, Drew Moss, will be down here next week to talk about um, just uh, some characteristics of the kingdom. Um, tonight, though, I am going to take up, as your handouts say, the kingdom judgments, parables about the judgments. I'm going to follow on what Paul did, and, uh, and I listened to Paul's lesson today, and I really, really appreciated how he explained the nature of the parables. And so I'm looking forward to building off of that. Before we get started, let's go ahead and open up with prayer. God, you are good, you are faithful, and you have communicated to us, to your followers, very real very knowable truths about who you are and about what it's like to be members of your kingdom. We know your scriptures are trustworthy. I pray that we would have hearts that treat them as such. I pray that we would have hearts that, that come to your word, to the very words that you inspired to find truth and to live by that truth. Help us tonight to, to treat these words with the appropriate care but that we wouldn't be scared of them either. We pray that you would meet us here tonight and that you would um, illuminate these truths in our hearts and give us a deep, overwhelming desire to follow them. We are grateful for your scriptures. We love you, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, just so you know, if my voice sounds different, I, today I found out I have an ear infection, so it sounds crazy in my head right now. Um, fortunately, it's in, I don't know, many of you might not know this, I'm totally deaf in my left ear, so that's a great place to have an ear infection. Um, I spent 30 minutes today begging a physician's assistant to just cut out the eardrum. I don't need it, and it hurts. Uh, she ignored everything I said, but uh, nevertheless, it feels weird up here, so I don't know if it sounds weird out there. Um, I will try very hard not to cough into the amplifier, but uh, we'll make it through. So we are in um, the Kingdom Judgments Part 2, and again, I'm grateful for Paul's um, work that he did last week. It was very um, helpful for me to even go back and listen to what he had to say, and I, and I found it very, very um, helpful. Tonight we're going to be in Matthew's gospel um, almost exclusively, although we'll have reasons to leave it for supporting text, but we are going to be dealing with um, the parables in Matthew 13, Matthew 22, and Matthew 25. And again, these are all parables that have to do with judgment. And studying the judgment parables is it is a fascinating exercise because they aren't intended to scare us. They aren't intended to um, cause panic in our hearts, but they, I, I believe that they're intended to bring hope. 
They're intended to bring about resolve and a commitment to following this way of living that Jesus says, should you not live this way, you will meet severe judgment. And it is a very, very helpful exercise to try to take the words of Jesus at face value because you're gonna find areas where it gets a little complicated. But to come to Jesus' words and just say, like, as complicated as this may seem, I, I have resolved to obey. And, in, and in, doing, in so doing, Jesus says that I am a member of his kingdom. So the first, the first parable that we're going to, to deal with tonight is the parable of the wheat and the weeds. This is in the middle of Matthew 13. Matthew 13 has a number of parables in it. I picked this one um, because I thought that it, was, it would give the best representation of the, um, the, the, whole, the, the entire chapter. But as I read through this parable, um, it would be helpful for us to remember when Jesus teaches using parables, which he does very, very often, he's usually answering either an explicit or an implied question. And understanding what the parable means, um, the, one of the most helpful things you can do is go find what that question is that he's responding to. So we'll read through this and then we'll ask, what question is Jesus answering? Here's the, here's the parable, the wheat and the weeds, starting in Matthew 13, verse 24. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go, up, go out and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But then gather the wheat into my barn. Now this parable has been... Um, We'll see here in a second, this is one of the very few parables that Jesus gives a very um, literal translation of, or he, he interprets it for us. But before we go and read what Jesus says that it meant, I want us to deal with some options for interpretation, because this parable, people have struggled with this. There are a number of questions that, um, that people put to this parable, and they say, what how would this have sounded to a first century Jew? It's a great question to ask. How, how would his audience have first reacted to this? What question are they asking? Because Jesus seems to say that the kingdom of heaven is here and now. That's Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's like this. And if I'm a first century Jew, I might be looking around and saying, Really? This, this is the kingdom? Not really impressive, Jesus. Not really what we were expecting, Jesus. This is a passage from a book known as the Psalms of Solomon. 
which isn't in our Bibles, isn't necessarily um, considered inspired or canonical, but nevertheless is an accurate representation of first century Jewish mindsets when it, came, when it comes to what was the kingdom going to look like? What did the Jewish population expect the kingdom of God to look like? They expected the, the, the Messiah to purge Jerusalem from the Gentiles, to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of the sinners, to destroy the unlawful nations. At his warning, that would be the Messiah, at the Messiah's warning, the nations will flee from his presence and he will condemn sinners by the thoughts of their hearts. He will gather a holy people whom he will lead in righteousness. He will not tolerate unrighteousness even to pause among them. The alien and the foreigner will no longer live near them. There will be no unrighteousness among them in his days, for all shall be holy, and their king shall be the Lord Messiah. And Jesus walks onto the scene, making messianic claim after messianic claim, and says, the kingdom is here. And I have to believe that most of the people in the audience say, yeah, I don't think this is what it's supposed to look like. The two biggest things that we're expecting is absolute purity and separation from those who aren't absolutely pure. And we must remember that the Jewish mindset, they had no context for the idea that Israel might reject its own Messiah. And if I'm in Jesus' audience and he's telling me that the kingdom of heaven is here and, and then he uses this agricultural illustration to describe it, I might say, then how come so many people in Israel have rejected you if you're the Messiah describing your kingdom? And if your kingdom is really here, Jesus, if you really are the Messiah and you really are connected to Yahweh, why is Rome still an occupying army? I thought the Messiah would kick out all of the aliens, all the foreigners, all those who are unrighteous, Jesus. This doesn't look like the kingdom we've expected. How come the Gentiles are still around? Why is Samaria still there? This doesn't look like the kingdom at all, Jesus. Perhaps the most important question they're asking with regards to this parable is, how come you haven't judged evil yet? That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to come and he's supposed to, to judge the wicked and to separate them from the righteous. And Jesus tells a story about, yeah, all the bad stuff that's mixed in with the good stuff. We're not separating that yet. Give me time. I'll take, it. I'll take care of it when I want to. That grates against the Jewish mindset. No wonder Jesus' message was rejected by the large majority of the Jewish population. This is not, this is not the kingdom they expected at all. The question that this parable is answering is it's answering the, the doubt that's rising from the fact that Jesus has failed to purge Israel of its enemies. And the fact that Israel, by and large, doesn't believe in him. And Jesus tells this parable. Now, we, we need to come and ask, what's being described then by this parable? Your next, your next line on your note says, is Jesus talking? There's, there's three major interpretive kind of directions that people will go. 
with regard to the wheat versus the weeds, and, the, and we don't want to separate them yet, is he talking about the fact that the church is mixed? That there are some in the church who don't follow Jesus like Jesus instructs? That's option number one. Option number two is he could be talking about kind of the battle in each of us, good versus evil. It's kind of like a process of sanctification that we're going to become righteous over a period of time. And then the third most prominent way to view this is, is he just talking about the world? Is he talking about the fact that the kingdom is present and yet evil still exists in the world? After all, there's Rome. These are the three things that we've got to, we've got to deal with. And, and I actually think they're pretty easy to deal with because Jesus explains it for us. Right after this parable, he, explain, he, he gives the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, which just um, quite simply are parables that describe the fact that the kingdom might not be as impressive as you expect it to be, but it nevertheless is here. Then he describes the relationship that prophecy has to parables. And then down in verse 36, he says this. After teaching in front of the crowds, he goes off into a private meeting with his followers. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. <laughs> Even they're saying, like, Jesus, that one, that one was a weird one. And Jesus answers, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So Jesus goes in and he labels everything for us. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and then throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus explains this. No, I'm not talking about the mix nature of the church. I'm not even talking about the tension between good and evil in, kind of in the hearts of my followers. I'm talking about the world. The field is the world. And, and you might not have expected it to look like this, but the kingdom is here, and evil still exists. And I don't need you to go and purge the world of evil. I will judge everything in the end, Jesus says. Now, I'll, I'll back up to say many times we ignore Jesus' explanation of this, and this parable has often been taught to explain the need for us to be careful with, quote, weaker brothers and sisters in the church. That we need to, um, we can't uproot them because that could cause people to stumble. The truth is, though, that just doesn't, that doesn't, dovetail well with how Jesus describes sin in his church. Great passage to make sure that we are reading this correctly is Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is an entire chapter about how we deal with sin in the church. There's first a section that says, Anything that would tempt you to sin, get rid of it. We don't need that. We, we ought not have temptations in our lives. Then he gives the parable of the lost sheep, which I, it's another parable that is often misunderstood. 
Jesus doesn't go have the 99 and go after the lost one as if that's a new believer he can go get. The 100 sheep are a representation for the church and that one lost sheep is a rebellious or sinful member of the church that Jesus will go and get and convince to repent. These people are already part of his fold and he says that the repentance is key. And then right after that, he has a section that says, this is, why, this is how you deal with sin in the church. You just go to someone privately and, and beg them to repent. And if they refuse, well, then you go and you get another person and you beg them to repent. And if that doesn't work, then you take them to a larger group. And if that doesn't work, you take them to the church leadership. And if that doesn't work, and if that doesn't work, then eventually you have to excommunicate them. Not so that it's punitive. You're not punishing them just so that you could get them to repent. Because right after that, Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Seven times? And Jesus says, actually, 77 times or seven times, 70 times. Peter basically says, yeah, if we go through all of these measures to deal with sin in the church, is there a limit to our forgiveness? Is there ever a point where I can say, I'm done? And Jesus says, nope, there's not. Because right after that, he tells a story about the parable of the unforgiving servant, a man who was forgiven much, who would then go and refuse to forgive a little offense with someone else. And Jesus says, how dare you mock the grace extended to you, the forgiveness given to you by refusing to offer it to someone else. If God can forgive a human being, a human being can certainly forgive another human being. This is an entire chapter about dealing with sin in the church. Therefore, Matthew 13 is not saying we're going to go easy on sin in the church. Just let it happen and we'll deal with it at the end. That's not what Matthew 13 is saying. Matthew 13 is answering the question, if your kingdom really is here, Jesus, why does it look like this? Why does evil still exist? Why haven't you judged everyone? Why haven't you separated us from the unrighteous? And Jesus just says, that's not how I'm going to do this. That's not how I'm going to do this. Which brings us to our last line under that parable. What does this parable mean and therefore what is it calling us to do? The wheat and the weeds teaches that the kingdom is present despite the presence of evil and that evil will ultimately be judged. The truth is the presence of the kingdom gives us hope. See, what Jesus says is, yes, you still live in a broken world, but the kingdom's here. Gives us hope. Gives us a context for understanding evil itself. You see, if Jesus says, I don't need you to deal with evil right now so much as just trust me that I will judge it at the end, that gives me a new framework for understanding mass shootings in Oregon. It tells me that God cares about it. It's not that he's unaware of it. It's just that for whatever reason, in the infinite mind of God, his judgment is very, very patient. And sometimes that can be hard for me to deal with. But his judgment is very, very patient. And he says, evil things like that won't go unpunished. I'm just not operating on your timeline, first century Jewish audience, 21st century Oklahoman audience. I don't operate on your timeline. You see, this parable tells us that God is operating 
out of his own prerogative, despite the expectations of his followers. And Jesus says, and I need you to trust me on this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he says that, he is calling us to do a number of things, to live with discernment, to live with the resolve that the kingdom is powerful, is effective, despite the presence of evil, and that perhaps it's our job to live holy lives in the midst of all this evil. God is not unaware, nor does he not simply just not care about evil. And this tells us that the proclamation of the gospel doesn't itself eradicate evil. Isn't that fascinating? We bring the good news and evil continues to take place. If anything, evil becomes more magnified in the face of something as beautiful as the gospel. The gospel doesn't get rid of evil, it just transforms minds and hearts to have a new understanding of it and a new longer view of history and a trust for the all sovereign God who says, I know what I'm doing when I say my judgment is patient. This is a hard parable for me to get in line with when I see all sorts of injustice and cruelty and evil continuing to take place. And Jesus says, no, my judgment is patient. In the end, I will take care of this. And one last question I like to ask of this parable. Is it possible that we can occasionally overemphasize the sovereignty of God? And place the blame for many, many things at his feet. When, you know, just a simple reading of this parable says, an enemy came and sowed the weeds. When they asked him if he sowed good seed, he said, of course I did. Where did the weeds come from? An enemy has done this. Do I believe that God is in absolute control of everything? Absolutely, I do. Do I believe that he is in some way culpable for the evil things that take place? This parable says no. That an enemy has done this, who Jesus later defines as the devil. And it asks us to, to think carefully before we have an overemphasized view of the sovereignty of God such that we begin to lay the blame for evil and heinous atrocities at his feet. Just a, a caution. This, this parable teaches that his, his judgment is patient and it helps us answer questions like, why God? Like, my wife has had to spend a lot of time lately asking questions of why her brother has brain cancer. And this is, this is a parable that tells her, be patient. The, the, the brain cancer, God's not culpable for that, although it's not beyond the realm of his control, as complicated as that truth could be. But it, it, it's a good reminder to my wife that those kinds of evils are temporary, and they will be done away with at some point. And this parable begs us to be patient. The next parable that deals with judgment is called the wedding feast in Matthew 22. Now, I know Jim touched on this, but he didn't get to the very end, so I wanted to come back and um, address it. I'm trying really hard not to cough. 
Okay, Matthew 22. This is, um, Paul talked a lot last week about context, which is very, very helpful. This parable comes on the heels of two others, the parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants, which all of these parables come after a section in which Jesus' authority is challenged. They basically say, like, who are you to speak the way you do? And then he just goes into a parable. Typical Jesus, frustrating, won't answer your question, just tells a story you don't understand. Still dealing with that issue of his authority, Jesus says this. Chapter 22, verse 1. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. People don't like this parable, by the way, because if you make the king out to be God in this parable, he seems really cantankerous. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who invited, those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And then there's a little bit there at the end of the parable. We'll get to that in a second. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying here, again in the context of judgment, we must understand the issue of an honor and shame culture. We no longer live in an honor and shame society, but they very much did. And Jesus is speaking to a society where... Um, Table fellowship was one of the primary ways of extending and showing honor to those people who were close to you. And so we ask, how do first century dining customs help us understand Jesus' story? When someone invites you to have a meal in their house, they are saying, we are equals. If you can, if you can have a meal at my table, I, it, is a, it is an ancient way of affirming that person's life. The way you live, I accept that. We are equals. Now, take that up a notch. How would a refusal to attend a royal banquet have been received? The king has a wedding for his son, and there's a banquet, and he invites you to come. Now, I've been to two weddings in a Middle Eastern um, country. They're not kidding when they say this is a town-wide event. You don't even need an invitation. There's just dancing and music and food. You come. Everybody comes. And it's amazing because many Middle Eastern countries are still very honor and shame based. To not come, even if uninvited, to not come to a wedding is offensive. And they will remember who didn't come. They're very angry people sometimes. Um, and I, a lot of these are my family members, so I can mock them. But they get really kind of angry when people have slighted them by not coming to their wedding. Take that up a notch. And what happens when the king invites you to his son's wedding and you don't come? That is quite literally treason. 
Not only is it shame on me for you refusing my invitation, I'm the king. To, to decline my invitation is treason. Now put that in the context of the God of the universe incarnate as Jesus Christ, telling a story about a king who's invited certain people to his banquet and they refuse to come and then he kills them. Now, there's important passages that can help us understand this. Isaiah 25. Now, if you were a good Jew, you would have known this passage. What Jesus was saying was not lost on his, on his first century hearers. Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6. Isaiah records, on this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples. It's important to start listening to this phrase, all peoples, all nations. He will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that veil? He will swallow up death forever at this wedding banquet. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The ancient Israelites viewed this wedding banquet as the, the way that they would recognize their salvation coming to them. And Jesus tells this parable. Yeah, you've refused the invitation to the wedding. Back in Matthew 8, he actually helps us understand it even more. He gets us ready for this rejection of God's people when it comes to his Messiah. Matthew 8. Right on the heels of this section about the faith of a centurion. This is Matthew 8, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. How damning. I tell you, many will come from such, uh, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Basically, many, many foreigners will come and become a part of the people of God. While the sons of the kingdom, Israel themselves, will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says in Matthew 8, you should have been looking for this banquet. That famous feast, that wedding banquet from Isaiah 25 where God would gather up his people, all the nations, and that he would do away with death forever, and that he would bring salvation on the house of Israel, you guys are missing it. The kingdom of heaven is here. And then in Matthew 22, he says, and I have invited you to this banquet, but you were, you were busy with your farm and with your business. You see, Jesus says, you wanted to have the kingdom built around your own agenda. And therefore, you'll have no part of it.
They've rejected Jesus. And then we have this, this incredible section right at the end, verses 11 through 14. Jesus continues and says, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to, his, to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, what do we make of the king's treatment of this man? Because thus far, we're tracking with, through the parable and we're thinking, yep, what you've done deserves that and what you've done deserves that. This all seems very just. And then the king comes into the banquet hall and sees a man who's not dressed properly. And, and such an offense merited being thrown out into the outer darkness, which is no kind saying. Like, what do we make of this treatment? I'll tell you, there are many scholars who just detach this from the parable altogether. Say, Matthew didn't write that because Jesus didn't say it. Uh, I think Jesus said it. Because a wedding garment would have had, um, uh, it would have been uh, light-colored linens, which if you know Revelation from Encounter last year, represent like the righteous deeds of the saints. And the king comes in and says, no, you're, you're unfit for this wedding. You're unfit for my kingdom. This man represents the unrighteous people who make no preparation for judgment whatsoever. Which makes, brings us to another relatively uncomfortable point. And, and you'll find this across the board in Jesus' parables. Jesus seldom connects judgment to a lack of faith. He most often connects judgment to disobedience. To unrighteous acts. And for those of us who have grown up as children of the Protestant Reformation, where we are saved by grace through faith alone, and that there is no such thing as a gospel of works, right, works-based righteousness, Jesus' parables will make you very, very uncomfortable because he would basically say, yeah, you're, you're not a part of my kingdom because you didn't do righteous deeds. You didn't behave properly. We'll see here in a second. You are not a part of my kingdom because you didn't offer compassion. He's, he almost never says, you're not a part of my kingdom because you didn't believe in me. And we come face to face with parables like this and think, I don't know what to do with this. This makes me uncomfortable. This seems a little legalistic because this man was thrown out into the darkness because he wasn't wearing the pure garments of someone who does righteous deeds. But that's okay, we can deal with that. Let's ask then, by the time we get to our third parable, I think it will become uh, a bit more clear what Jesus is actually saying. So asking then the question, what does this parable mean and what does this parable call us to do? The wedding feast emphasizes an obedient response. That would be the first 10 verses. And 11 through 14, an awareness of the reality of judgment. 
It says, not only ought you listen to the king and respond to him in an, appro- in an appropriate way, but don't forget that those that aren't clothed in the righteous deeds of the saints or in the righteousness purchased for us, depending on how you kind of want to go that route, for you, judgment will take place. When you distill it down, this, this parable says, you cannot have the kingdom on your own terms. You cannot have the kingdom on your own terms. I love this quote from a man named Robert Mulholland. This is in a book um, that's dealing with issues of, of how we read scripture. And he says this, I have discovered that my tendency is to say to God, what is your will? And we can all, right, we can all kind of um, resonate with that. I want to know what God's will for my life is. I want to know what I ought to do. I really do have a desire to obey and to follow him. We say, my tendency is to say to God, what is your will? Then I can set God's will up against all the rest of my options and pick what I think is best. He continues, I have also discovered that when this is the mode in which I seek God's will, it is amazing how closed the heavens are. And what he's saying, this is in the context of reading scripture. He says, when I come to scripture with any sort of inkling in my heart that when Jesus places a command on my life or an obligation in terms of how I live and I view it as an option among many, Robert Mulholland says, yeah, God doesn't work like that. You can't have the kingdom on your own terms. And so he says, whenever that's your approach to scripture, don't be shocked that your prayers are seldom answered as you wish they were. Don't be shocked that God doesn't work with that. And he says the remedy for that is to come to scripture before reading a single word with an absolute resolve to obey, no matter what the consequences are, no matter how difficult or uncomfortable it might be. Because he says, when we come and view what Jesus would ask us to do as if it's an option among others, among my best ideas, I'm just asking to have the kingdom on my own terms. And when we last saw people asking for the kingdom on their own terms, the king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. King uh, Jesus seldom takes kindly to those who would prescribe how he should operate the kingdom. Tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. And this parable is a great reminder for us that we are the servant in the relationship. That we are the follower in the relationship. That we look to Jesus as the one who gives instructions and with No questions asked. Now, I think that I'm allowed to ask for explanations. I'm just not allowed to question as if my ideas are better. And I think sometimes I have a heart that wants to, that really believes that I know how this needs to operate, despite what Jesus might say. Uh, I think I might have, like, I'm here all the time, so I have, like, a better understanding of the situation. And Jesus just says, no, you can't have the kingdom on your own terms. May we never take entrance into the messianic banquet for granted because it just doesn't seem to be something that Jesus offers us. This parable also asks us to um, consider how we understand time. You see, this, this wedding banquet 
is described in the present tense as if it's already taking place, which tells me a couple of things. Number one is I should have a very strong urgency to bring others into this wedding banquet. I should have an understanding of time that says, yeah, this judgment could be closer than I know. I need to be urgent. I need to be diligent in my own obedience, and I need to beg others to find Jesus and obey him as well. This parable really helps me understand time, and and more than anything, this parable tells us that God, in his judgment, is not soliciting our opinions about things. It is helpful to remember our opinions because he's a loving father. He will care about them, but still, much like the opinions of my two-year-old, I care about them, but they are irrelevant. He has no clue how things are going to go, and his mother and I will make those decisions. I think God loves to hear our hearts and then says, and yeah, your opinion doesn't count. Like, this is my kingdom, and it's helpful for us to remember whenever he um, demands that we obey him. Our final parable is the sheep and the goats. This is is Jesus' last parable before he gets himself arrested. And again, this comes at the end of a a chain of parables. This is in, um, uh, Paul began, um, this is the Olivet Discourse. He began um, with, with this last week, and I think he did at least the 10 virgins. I don't know if he did the talents. But this, this is a, um, a section where Jesus is doing a bit of private teaching, just explaining the end of things. This is what he says in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. There's that phrase again that's important. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now this is what the Jewish people expected. Jesus is just moving the timeline. He will separate the righteous and the unrighteous. Now it's very important for us to ask this question. What would have been going through the mind of Jesus' first century audience as he describes this throne of judgment? Daniel 7 is what would have been going through their mind, and it would have been racing through their mind. Daniel 7 is one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament, um, just simply because of the beauty and the majesty with which it describes God and his throne room. But this is what they would have heard or would have been running through their minds as Jesus describes his, his judgment seat here. This is Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, this is my, one of my favorite names for God, he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, there we go again, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Jewish people were longing for this figure, this one like the Son of Man to show up, the one who was given the authority from the ancient of days. And Jesus, right as he's about to get arrested, and at the end of a long and contentious ministry where he did little but make enemies with the Jewish elite, 
he walks in and says, when the son of man, I'm assuming with like a thumb point, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and his followers have to be making the connections to Daniel 7. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, I've mentioned several times this all the nations notion. Let's, let's ask, how would that have been understood? First of all, first century Jews would have never thought that that reference was talking to them. All the nations was everybody else. And Jesus is going to include Israel in all the nations, which is a little alarming for them. Would have been rather unexpected, as Jesus tends to be in his parables. But there's several passages right around this where we can see all the nations being described. In Matthew 24, verse 9, he goes back. And when they've asked him, what are the signs of the end of the age? He says after kind of the issues of the kind of cataclysmic things taking place, then they will deliver you up to tribulation, verse nine says, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So Jesus is talking about that my kingdom will be hated by all the nations. But look at what it says, verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So we see the nations will hate the kingdom. We see that the gospel will be taken to the nations. And then it will be proclaimed to all the nations. And then we have in chapter 25 where Jesus says that he will gather all of them and separate them, the sheep from the goats. And then that famous chapter at the end of Matthew Matthew 28, all the nations is used again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So first we see Israel would likely not have thought of themselves in the context of all the nations. Especially when Jesus says, and all the nations will hate my kingdom. And then um, you're gonna proclaim my gospel to all the nations. And he says, and you're going to make disciples of all the nations. They would have been wrestling with that. And as he separates the people from one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 33. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Now, one real quick caveat. There is, um, sometimes we can look at like sheep and pigs and recognize that we're talking about clean and unclean animals. There's really not a distinction between the animals like that. This isn't a, a purity thing. This isn't a classification of animals. This is simply saying there's a difference between the two. He's not drawing on like the ceremonial differences between clean and unclean animals. It's just the fact that sheep and goats happen to be different. And so they were being separated. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, that would be the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he says, this is how, this is kind of how you merited your entrance into the kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, that would be the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the, one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, who do we make, um, who are we supposed to understand the, the least of these to be? Are they children? Some say, are they like Gentiles? But I think that many people try to go and allegorize this text. I know Paul talked about that a lot last week. That's a danger we, we often run into with, with parables is we want to turn it into an allegory. But the list makes it quite clear. The, the least of these are simply the oppressed and unfortunate and disenfranchised, those who are struggling just to get by, those who are sick or in prison, those who need compassion, those are the least of these. And again, we've run into a parable where Jesus doesn't say that judgment and, and presence or position in the kingdom is contingent on faith in him, but on an action, on extending mercy and compassion. This drives us crazy as Protestants. And again, Jesus does this in many of his parables. He says, in essence, that faithful discipleship is marked by mercy and love for the oppressed. Now, I think it's also interesting that he uses the phrase, depart from me, in verse 41, which calls to mind that famous section in Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll see why he said it back in Matthew 7, and maybe that'll help us understand why he said it here. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one, not who believes in me, 
the one who does the will of my Father. How fascinating. Who is in heaven? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Their condemnation came from the fact that they refused to do the will of the Father. And here, the will of the Father seems to be that we ought to have mercy and compassion for those less fortunate. And those who don't, who refuse, Jesus says, depart from me. And then we ask the question, is this works-based righteousness? But I'll ask the, the counter question, is our view of the gospel deficient when we only ever talk about it in the context of faith? Matthew and Jesus, in, so if we're gonna stay in this gospel, but I'll even say Matthew, Jesus, and Paul, and John, and Luke, and Mark, and Peter, they never pit works against faith as if one is more valuable than the other. Read the book of James. They say that your works are inseparable from your faith. Your faith might be the a priori, the, the, the catalyst of the works themselves, but to have one without the other is technically impossible. And so when Jesus comes in and says, those who follow me will offer, will extend compassion to those, will obey my words, and he, uses, he, he leaves out words such as faith and grace, He's not saying that you're saved by your works. He's saying that if you were saved, you would work. If you have a, a faith that is real is a faith that works, Jesus says. And he says, because I can, I can simply judge those who don't work, and my judgment will always be right. What does this parable mean? What is it calling us to do? The sheep and the goats teaches that followers of Jesus are compassionate and that we will give an account for our treatment of the oppressed. Our relationship with God is by necessity lived out in our relationships to other humans. This notion that I can have a, I, you know, just personal Ryan rant time. I hate the phrase personal relationship with Jesus because what it does is it gets so dangerous and it makes me believe or it can it possibly lead me to believe that I can live this relationship out in isolation with just me and Jesus. And the Bible never talks like that. We have a communal faith. I cannot be in relationship with God without being in relationship with other people. The Bible never says that there's an option to do otherwise. We live out our faith in God, our obedience to him in the context of brothers and sisters being together. We accept our salvation as a gift of God through faith in Jesus, but only those who love their neighbors, according to this parable, and show compassion to the distressed are acceptable to God. So which one is it, faith or compassion? The Bible says, I dare you to separate them. And so we get really scared when we come to these parables and we think, wow, like, is this works righteousness? This makes me uncomfortable. But Jesus never really asks if we're comfortable with it. He just says, yeah, those who, who obey me, they're members of the kingdom. We will be held accountable for our response to the will of God. Jesus never asks if we're okay with extending compassion. He simply demands it. 
then I love Klein Snodgrass's quote, a person cannot be a follower of Jesus and be void of compassion, which is at the heart of the gospel. Why have so many Christians thought we could have the grace without the demand? Which goes back to an earlier Klein Snodgrass quote on the front page. The kingdom comes with limitless grace in the midst of an evil world, but with it comes limitless demand. And it's helpful to reflect on that, that I've been given this beautiful gift free of charge based on nothing that I've done. I have not merited this grace in any way, and yet this grace demands everything of me. That's why discipleship and following Jesus is complicated and difficult and hard. May we never like undersell that to people. This last parable tells us that God's judgment demands reciprocated grace. As recipients of grace, we too ought to extend grace. And uh, just earlier, I came across a great um, quote that kind of goes along with some of the reasons that these parables themselves are frustrating. This is from a, um, a theologian uh, at Yale Divinity School named Miroslav Volf, and he says this in, uh, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He says, we may believe in Jesus, but we have a hard time believing in his ideas. And that's sobering to think that I really like the idea of Jesus I don't really like his ideas. And, I, and I con- one of my greatest prayers lately, I mean, we've, I've been teaching through the parables in, in another context, and, and they've really challenged me to, to just beg God to bring my heart in line with his demands because he, he places a lot of demands and obligations on his followers. And says, you must be compassionate. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. They ask him, like, which one of these people, like, what does it look like to be a member of the kingdom? And he says, well, it's not a priest, and it's not a Levite. It's the Samaritan who just happened to offer compassion. And then he ends that parable with, and go and do likewise. Answering the question, how do I be a part of your kingdom, Jesus? Well, show compassion to people. It's very, very heavy whenever Jesus comes in and says, it's not just your faith. Um, we, we, we get really um, concerned, at least I do. Maybe I'm just talking about myself. I get concerned whenever people start, I start to wonder if it's legalism. If, if you're just telling me I have to do actions to be acceptable before God. And, and another um, theologian, um, he had a great line. He said, we get so scared of a, a faith of works. He said, I wonder if we should be equally scared of an inactive faith. And that, that is sobering. And Jesus' judgment parables say, yeah, that's not an option. Those who don't extend compassion and kindness and reciprocate the grace that they have received. They're not members of my kingdom. And so we see here the imperative to go and live as members of the kingdom, live out the grace and the beautiful compassion that we have received by faith. That's it. on the dot. You guys are free to go.